Welcome to TopCast and to an unusual episode. I've titled it, Things That Make You Go, Hmm. And I hope it's a fun one. Anyone of a certain age who lived through the 90s will know the song. And I wondered what to call today's episode. Because what I'm kind of doing is reacting to a Making Sense podcast. One of the very early ones that Sam Harris did, interviewing Max Tegmark. And Max is a fascinating guy who's written books, he's a physicist, and he steps into philosophy and epistemology, philosophy of science and that kind of thing. And so it's interesting to tease out some of the differences. And I thought to myself, how should I title this episode? You know, sometimes people advise me, your titles are too boring, you're not going to get as many viewers if you tried to be a little bit more clickbaity, you know, so I thought like, Popperian reacts to Sam Harris, or Brett <laughs> Hall destroys Max Tegmark, something like that. But this all just seems silly, I don't want to go down that road. This is about as silly as I'll get today, playing a few little music clips. And really, when I thought about what I was doing, it wasn't so much a reaction to what Sam Harris was saying or what Max Tegmark was saying. It just gave me prompts to talk about a particular worldview. It allowed me to explain the differences between what I regard as more or less mainstream philosophical views on these particular things and what I hear at TalkCast explain, which is a version of Papirian epistemology, a version of the way in which David Deutsch explains the world. Everyone has their own version of things, but of course I cleave most closely to what is explained in the fabric of reality in the beginning of infinity, amongst other things. And what Max does here with Sam is he talks about, well, it just seemed like the letter M was coming up so often. He's talking about mathematics and morality, the material world, the multiverse, mind, <laughs> among other things. So I thought on listening to him, I can get a podcast of my own out of this. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I can get a series of podcasts out about all of this stuff. The M's, mm, mathematics, morality, metaphysics, minds, multiverses, misconceptions, mistakes about the material world and many worlds in the modern world. I could have called this whole thing an M theory podcast, but then there's already a theory in physics or metaphysics by that name. M theory is the generalization of string theory, if you look it up, or by Edward Witten, among others. But we have so much else to cover, I just doubt we'll get to membranes and those mysteries bordering on magic. Ostensibly, as I say, this is a reaction podcast, a reaction to Sam Harris and Max Tegmark talking for the first time on Making Sense, their first conversation there. But really, as I say, it's just an excuse for me to talk about these issues prompted by what they say there. This is, in the whole, mainly me speaking. So, for example, in this first episode, which is an hour long or so, I can tell you the ratio is approximately 15% of those two guys, Sam and Max, and 85% me. And in this first episode, actually, of the series, I've only got through about the first 18 minutes or so of their original podcast. I am, over this series, going to select snippets from throughout that entire podcast. And they also did a second podcast as well, and I'm just going to take the first part of that second podcast. Podcast, which is largely about AGI. And of course, I'm going to say there are serious fundamental misconceptions in the worldview of Sam and Max when it comes to AGI and issues around AGI. So that's what's happening today. I think I've got this particular episode with Sam talking to Max in something like triplicate. I've got the original podcast feed and I've also got the subscriber podcast feed as well. And then I actually got the audio book that Sam produced of the Making Sense podcast, the first interview of which is in that book. I've got the physical book, well, I should say Kindle version of the book and the audio version of the book. The very first one that Sam put in there, quite rightly, is David Deutsch. Both of David Deutsch's interviews appear as number one and two of his selected interviews for the Making Sense book. And the last interview that is in there is with Max Tegmark. So it's a nice way to top and tail that particular book. I think the two most interesting people that are interviewed throughout that entire book, the series of interviews, is certainly David and Max. And of course, Sam has an M in his name and Max has an M in his name as well. And I'm going to be playing a little music today. So hence the title of the episode. I think I might be over-egging things a little bit. You get the point. 
I'm going to, of course, play some clips from the episode, but certainly not the whole thing. It's definitely worth listening to if you can get a hold of it. And I feel as if I agree when it comes to things on the multiverse and aspects of philosophy that I'm agreeing with the general tenor of what's being said more often than not. More often than not. However, as I say, there are interesting differences here which will allow us to explore a Papirian view of this thing and how David Deutsch comes to especially these ideas about the multiverse. What struck me in the interview, and this is not so true of Max's books on the topic and articles on the topic because he his big thing is talking about levels of the multiverse, different versions of the multiverse. Well, in this interview he gives with Sam Harris where he spends a lot of time talking about the multiverse, well, the one kind of multiverse that he doesn't talk about is the quantum multiverse, which is really, really bizarre. He talks about all these other kinds, but not Everettian quantum theory. So we miss out on that. And instead, we're talking about another M, I would say, metaphysics. Well, except for his level one multiverse. His level one multiverse, I don't even think kind of qualifies as a multiverse. It's just the universe beyond what's observable. But we know that there is something beyond the observable universe. But this also comes back to their view of science, when I say there, I mean Sam and Max seem to agree about something to do with the unobserved, and the unobserved is somehow or other regarded by others as being not a part of science. I don't know who these others are. These are empiricists, but no one seems these days much to answer to the title of empiricist. But what they get wrong, and we'll hear this, is that they seem to think that things which are not observable are therefore not Popperian. But this is wrong. Okay, this is, this is seriously wrong. As we will come to, a theory which is in principle, not testable, is not science. Now, scientists get really upset. Well, only a certain breed of physicists. Well, only a certain breed of theoretical physicists. Get really upset if you start to say things like, what you're doing there with your theory, interesting as it, as it is, close to physics as it is, is not testable. We have no way known of testing it, even in principle. And so therefore, it doesn't qualify as science. It's metaphysics, which is still really worthy and interesting and good to do. And they get very, very upset. They don't want to be accused of not doing physics. <laughs> but I don't see why they're so upset. They're doing either mathematics or they're doing metaphysics. It's okay. They're at the intersection of those areas. And maybe one day in the distant future, we will be able to find ways of testing these metaphysical theories. Things like one of Max's multiverses, namely his level four multiverse, which is the multiverse of universes where those other universes have different, different laws of physics. The Everettian multiverse, all the universes obey exactly the same laws of physics. Namely, they come out of our understanding of the quantum laws of physics. So they all obey the quantum laws of physics. But this level four multiverse that Max talks about, that's the the universe that obeys all other possible different kinds of laws of physics. And David Lewis first thought about this. If you like, these are the logically possible other universes. Logically possible, not merely physically possible other universes, which is what the quantum multiverse is. Those universes that are permitted by the existing laws of physics. Now, if there are places out there in reality beyond our physical reality, then they would obey, presumably, other laws of physics. And if all such other laws of physics are instantiated some way out there, then we have all logically possible universes out there somewhere or other. And David Lewis first had this... Well, I don't think he first had this idea, but he certainly he wrote the book on it. And we called this idea the plenitude. So the plenitude is a much larger class of universes of different physical realities than the mere <laughs> Everettian multiverse, vast as that is. So Max endorses all of these multiverses, and he's going to explain these different multiverses. Now let me just give you a, a quick idea, quick rundown. He's got level one multiverse, which, as I say, I wouldn't regard as being a multiverse. It's just the universe, where the universe means we have this region of space that we can observe, and we know that beyond what is observed as a matter of cosmological fact is just a small portion of the entire physical universe, all obeying the same laws and all spatially continuous in some way or other. So that's the first kind of multiverse that Max talks about, and I would just call it the universe. Okay, so that's that. His second kind, his level two multiverse, well, this is perhaps at the Big Bang what happened was that during the inflationary period, there were lots of other bubble universes created. 
with different, slightly different initial conditions, but obeying the same laws of physics. So you have this proliferation at the Big Bang of many simultaneous Big Bangs going off, and lots and lots and lots of different universes being created in parallel, but we don't have access to those other universes. I'm not actually aware of any experimental test that has been proposed that would allow us to, even in principle, access observations that would allow us to rule out the single universe theory or the many universes theory in that sense, that kind of multiverse. And so therefore it sits at the moment in the realm of mathematics or metaphysics. It's not physics and it's not physics by the measure. We say that, well, you can't test it. There's no experimental test yet. Now I could be wrong about that. Someone clever might've thought of an experimental test. Now, in fact, there were observations uh, going back a decade or more that suggested that we might have been able to observe these other universes with different initial conditions, or perhaps even subtly different laws. And well, the observation went like this. If, if beyond the horizon of what we could see, let's say the constants of nature were different, then you would be able to observe that change in the constants of nature in a different universe, far away from where we are. And so a group of scientists, among them at the University of New South Wales, I've been talking about the University of New South Wales a little bit recently, but led by Professor John Webb and his colleague Michael Murphy, now Professor of Astrophysics down at Swinburne University. These guys using among the largest land-based telescopes, reflecting telescopes on Earth in Hawaii, the Keck telescopes, they were looking at light from very distant quasars that passed through very distant galaxies and along the way got absorbed and changed and whatever else. And they were looking at the spectral lines. And the spectral lines they looked at, they thought had changed in some way, were different to the ones in the laboratory here on Earth. Now, correcting for redshift and all that sort of stuff, correcting for everything, they still found a change. And the explanation for the change was this thing called the fine structure constant had changed. And if the fine structure constant had changed because it's made up of Planck's constant and the charge on an electron and the speed of light, so you've got these fundamental constants coming together to make up the fine structure constant. If the fine structure constant had changed, one or more of these other fundamental constants must have changed, but it's very hard to tell which one it would have been. Now, whatever the case, if the fine structure constant has changed in a different region of the universe, very distant from where we are, then that seems to suggest it is literally a different universe that you're seeing. You're seeing some other region of space obeying subtly different physical laws. So perhaps by that measure, we would be able to see another universe and that would make such a kind of multiverse testable in that sense. Now, in reality, of course, looking at this whole issue from a Peperian perspective, what they did was make a measurement of the fine structure constant and then concluded the fine structure constant is the thing that's changing. But they published all their results and they seem to repeatedly find, no matter how often they tested this and how many other groups also tested this, they all seem to converge on, yes, the fine structure constant seemed to have changed. Only a very, very tiny amount. But one can imagine looking still further with more powerful telescopes and see even more of a change. So perhaps the fine structure constant and the constant of the universe are what they are here around us. But as you get further away, closer to other universes, perhaps the constants of nature change and you can observe that with telescopes using clever methods. Well, as we say here in Papyrian epistemology, it could be the case that the fine structure constant is changing or it could be the case that you've made an error with your measurements. And yes, it turned out there was a systematic error. There was a systematic error with the measurements. So we were all very disappointed. But still, they had these really interesting techniques. It's just that there was a issue with the mirror or something, as far as I know, from these Keck telescopes that, anyway, I don't fully understand exactly what it was. All I know was their measurements of the change of the fine structure constant turned out to be null and void. There was no such change. So yes, this method of seeing other universes has failed. And there's no good explanation. There's no good explanation of being able to use such a method to actually physically see, if you like, other universes by seeing changes in constants of nature. We should expect if we do see changes in the constants of nature that what we're actually seeing is errors in the methodology, uh, errors with the instrumentation, that kind of thing. So we have no way of knowing, knowing in the Papyrian sense, having a good explanation that there really do exist these other universes out there with different physical laws, or that there really do exist these other universes, bubble universes out there that started with different initial conditions. 
But we do have a good explanation of the level 3 multiverse, as Max calls it, the Everettian multiverse. We know that one exists because it's the only known explanation of what we observe in quantum theory and the equations of quantum theory and all that kind of thing. So they're the four. One, the observed universe and the parts of the universe that are beyond the observed horizon. The level two multiverse, the bubble universes that also began supposedly at the Big Bang with slightly different initial conditions but obeying the same laws. The level three multiverse, the Everettian multiverse where everything obeys the same physical laws but you're constantly getting differentiation of those universes. And then last of all, all the logically possible universes that could exist with different physical laws completely. Or not so completely, but all possible physical laws are represented out there somewhere or other. Now, as I say, the first of those is just the universe, so that's fine, that counts as science, and number three counts as science, but two, how do we observe these things, and four, how do we observe those things? Well, no way known yet, but again, you hear some theoretical physicists talk and they get very upset, they are very touchy about being told that this doesn't quite qualify as science. This is no insult, though. In the Popperian framework, Popper's own work in epistemology is not science. It's non-science, and that's fine. It's totally fine. The overwhelming majority of people on planet Earth aren't doing science, but they're doing important work. So why people get upset, why physicists, only physicists, get upset when they're told, well, that's not experimentally testable just yet. If you can think of a clever experimental test that would allow us to, in some way, access those other universes, great. Then you've got an experiment, so you're back within the realm of science. That's the whole point of science, is to be able to do two things at once. To come up with a creative idea, yes, to, to think of the new explanation, the new theory, that's great. And to also think of how we might go about testing this in the real world to rule out competing theories. But if you can't rule out competing theories like, well, there's only one universe and it's the one that we're able to observe, then, well, you, I'm sorry, you're not quite doing science. Now, they can call it science if they want. That's fine. I'm not overly worried. They're certainly the next closest thing to science, right? This metaphysical discussion about other universes with different physical laws, I would say it's right next door to science. <laughs> you know, it's the next closest thing. And I can imagine that one day someone will think of some interesting way in which we might experimentally test for something like that. You know, I can imagine a distant future gravitational wave thing and that, that detects gravitational waves. And the only explanation of the particular pattern of gravitational waves would be if at the Big Bang other universes were being produced. Perhaps even other universes with different physical laws. I could imagine some distant future, someone thinking of something like that, but they haven't thought of it now, not so far as I'm aware. Okay, so let's get into listening to some of the discussion between Sam and Max, and I'll pause it at various points, and as I say, I'm just small snippets today, just picking out small snippets of the conversation and just reacting to it, and it'll give me an opportunity to discuss what Popper might have said about this kind of thing, and what I think that science says about all of this stuff at the moment, and what our best epistemology would say about what they're saying. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is towards the beginning of their discussion. Start there, kind of at the, at the foundations of our knowledge and the foundations of science. Because, you know, in science, we are making our best effort to arrive at a unified understanding of reality. And I think, think there are many people in our culture, many in humanities departments, who think that no such understanding is possible. They think there's no view of the world that encompasses subatomic particles and cocktail parties and, and everything in between. But... I think that from the point of view of science, we have to believe that there is. We, we may use different concepts at different scales, but there shouldn't be radical discontinuities between different scales in our understanding of reality. And I, uh, I'm assuming that's an intuition you share, but uh, let's just take that as a starting point. So I regard myself, of course, as a realist and as a scientific realist. But I do think there is a difference between science and non-science. And Sam wanted to say there that there should be a scientific understanding of everything from the very smallest through to cocktail parties through to the very largest. Now, in a sense, this is right, so long as you're just talking about the physical stuff. But we know that there is also abstract stuff. And there is a distinction, and I think Sam gets this later on in the conversation, certainly in his second conversation with Max, 
where he talks about the distinction between software and hardware. I don't know really if he has a clear idea in his mind as to what that difference is. But what we say here is that there is a difference between physical stuff and abstract stuff. And the abstract stuff can have an effect on the physical stuff. Now, it's via physical forces, obviously, but the difference is, and where this radical discontinuity does come in, which Sam doesn't think it exists, but I would say there is, there is a radical discontinuity, is where knowledge is created, where you have inherently unpredictable stuff. Now, within physics and within the physical sciences, we can have predictions. We can have quite precise predictions, so long as they are carefully controlled. But once you get into the realm of human affairs, it's not merely because certain problems are intractable. It's that they're in principle not predictable because they are acts of creation. Creating knowledge is an act of creation. It wasn't there before. It could not possibly have been predicted before. And then it was created. Now, how? We don't know. We don't yet know exactly how this creativity works. We simply know it exists. And this is true of lots of things in science all the time. We have this phenomena we don't quite understand, but we know that it's there. We know that it's real. We're yet to have a full understanding of it. And there won't be a full understanding, of course, in our Papirian view. And I would say that on the side of people who don't regard themselves as Papirians, and as we will see here, I would say one reason that people don't regard themselves as Papirians is they don't understand what Popper's epistemology is. They, they know barely the first thing. The first thing, of course, being testability, falsifiability, and they, th they think that that encompasses all of Papirian epistemology. We know that's not true, but if they think that, that's what they think, then they're apt to think that science is just this all-encompassing thing and that anything that is non-science is therefore not rational to begin with. As Sam wants to bring everything within the scientific worldview in that sense. Now, it's fine to have a rational worldview, a worldview governed by reason, but at the same time, to notice that there are differences in methodologies and to have names for these differences in methodology and not to make value judgments about these differences in methodology, just to recognise they are real. Not everything is mathematics and mathematics is not science. Therefore, science is not everything. These things are different. Morality is not science. Science makes claims about everything. It's universal. But so too can epistemology make claims about everything. But these are importantly distinct ways of coming to understand the world because they use different methodologies. And we just got names for these. But in certain moods, we hear Sam kind of suggesting something like, well, science just is knowledge. It just is knowledge. It's just if you can know stuff, then that's science. That seems to be the, the way he's hinting at stuff. And that if you claim that something's not science, then what you're saying of that thing is it's unreasonable or irrational or something else like that. And we just don't think that. There are parts of reality that are not amenable to a scientific understanding. Our best way in is not to understand that thing scientifically. It's to have a philosophical understanding, a moral understanding, a mathematical understanding. These things won't contradict science, but are different to science by the measure that here in science, we have this method of criticism that we call the experimental test. And that experimental test, the experiment, distinguishes science from other stuff. Mathematics is distinguished by this method of proof. Now, it's not only in mathematics that you have proof, but it is distinguished by that. It's one of the techniques that really is in mathematics and perhaps in logic as well, and in argumentation, of course. But our scientific understanding of proof is to say it's a physical process, and in fact, we're going to get to that because I think that this is one area of Max's worldview that doesn't quite correspond to what we understand reality is according to David Deutsch's understanding of the mathematician's misconception, this idea that mathematicians have privileged access to reality in some way. They have a special way of getting to certain knowledge, to the necessary truth. We'll come back to that. Let's just hear what Max has to say in response to Sam there. Yeah, when people, when someone says that they think reality is just a social construct or whatnot, then other people get upset and say, you know, if you think gravity is a social construct, I encourage you to take a step out through my window here on the sixth floor. And if you drill down into what this conflict comes from, it's just that they're using that R word, reality, 
in very different ways. And as a physicist, the way I use the word reality is I, I assume that there is something out there independent of me as a human. I assume that the Andromeda galaxy would continue existing, you know, even if I weren't here, for example. And then we take this very humble approach of saying, okay, there is some stuff that exists out there, our physical reality, let's call it. And uh, let's look at it as closely we can and try to figure out what properties it has. If there's some confusion about something, you know, that's our problem, <laughs> not reality's problem. There's no doubt in my mind that our universe knows perfectly well what it's doing and it's, it functions in some way. We physicists have so far failed to figure out what that way is and we're in this schizophrenic situation where we can't even make quantum mechanics talk to relativity theory properly. But that's the way I see it, simply a failure so far in our own creativity. And um, I think it's not only would I guess that there is a reality out there independent of us, but I actually feel it's quite arrogant to say the opposite. It, it's right. just, because it sort of presumes that we humans play should go center stage. Solipsists say that there is no reality <laughs> without themselves. Ostriches in the apocryphal story right, make this assumption that things that they don't see don't exist. But even very respected scientists go down this uh, slippery slope sometimes. But I, I think that's very arrogant, and I, I think we, <laughs> we can use a good dose of humility. So my starting point is that there is something out there, and let's try to figure out how it works. So I broadly agree with all of that. That's a rational defense of realism. This is arguing against those relativists. Not many people actually self-identify as relativists, but you do get this impression sometimes that people want to say, well, science has no privileged access to explaining the physical world. It's just people engaging in narratives. These are stories. These are fictions. They're not really under uncovering truths about reality. Their explanations aren't necessarily objective. This is just a certain way of explaining things that isn't privileged. Now, I think all that's wrong, and I think Max's defense of that is all quite right. And there's a sense in which that is a kind of arrogance. But I would just maybe, and this is where I'm, of course, splitting hairs, this is where I'm, of course, nitpicking, I would say that humans are center stage in a sense. We are. We are the only known system in the entire observable universe that we've ever known about that can model the rest of reality. We're center in that sense. David Deutsch speaks of us as being a hub, the planet Earth being a hub, where it's beginning to have this self-similarity with the rest of the universe. It's coming to resemble in certain ways the rest of physical reality. And that's a wonderful thing. That does put us at the center, the center of understanding. It might be the only such place in the universe where the universe is understanding itself. And so in that sense, we've got every right to be arrogant. Not arrogant in the sense that we will come to a final understanding or arrogant in the sense that we can't possibly have any understanding. And there's that arrogance of solipsism, of not possibly being able to and saying of other people, well, you can't understand anything either. Okay, that, that, that arrogance, no, we can rule that out as a bad explanation. But the arrogance of, yeah, we are really special. We are, so far as we know, entirely unique in being able to do this stuff that we can do to explain everything, to gain control over time of everything. I'm happy to put my hand up to that arrogance. And I think we should, we could do with a little bit more of that kind of arrogance and less of the humility of thinking that we can't or shouldn't. So that's the splitting hairs minor difference I would have in emphasis between people who want to argue against relativism in that way and say, well, the relativists are wrong, the solipsists are wrong. I agree with them that so far so good. But when they then turn around and say, well, we shouldn't be arrogant, we should have this humility. Now, yes, there's a humility of saying we don't have all the answers, so uh, we can't be arrogant in that way. But Nonetheless, not being so humble as to say we're not unique and special and powerful and all of that kind of thing. And we can gain more power over time, over the universe. And that's a good thing. Let's keep going. Inconveniently for us, this skepticism about the possibility of understanding reality does sort of sneak in the back door for us, somewhat paradoxically, by virtue of taking science seriously, in particular evolutionary biology seriously. And this is something you and I were talking about when we last met, where, uh, you know, I think at one point in the conversation, I 
observed, as, as almost everyone has uh, who thinks about evolution, that one thing we can be sure of is that our, that our cognitive capacities and our common sense and our intuitions about reality have not evolved to equip us to understand reality at the, at the smallest possible scale or at the largest or things moving incredibly fast or things that are very old. We, we have intuitions that are tuned for things at human scale, things that uh, are moving relatively slowly, and we have to decide whether we can mate with them or whether we can eat them or whether they're going to eat us. And so you and I were talking about this, and, and so I, I, you know, I said that it's no surprise, therefore, that the deliverances of science, in particular your areas of science, are deeply counterintuitive. And you That's right. You did me one better though. You you said that not only is it not surprising, it would be surprising and in fact give you reason to mistrust your theories if they were aligned with common sense. We should expect the punchline at the end of the book of nature to be deeply counterintuitive in some sense. And I just want you to expand on that a little bit. So of course I think that's kind of wrong, kind of wrong. There's this idea that we have these evolved intuitions and indeed evolved common sense, but I don't think that's true. I think we learn what's called common sense over time. We learn certain kind of intuitions. There might be some that are inborn, granted, granted, but what's not inborn uh, is Newton's physics. But people who try and learn Newton's physics tend to understand the three laws of motion pretty quickly. An object in motion stays in motion unless acted on by an external force, moving in a straight line. People get it. But back in Aristotle's time, that wasn't regarded as being true or being common sense. The common sense thing was any moving object eventually comes to a halt. That was common sense. Now, how do people come to this common sense? What is common sense? Is it common sense that a moving object eventually comes to a stop? Or is it common sense that a moving object will just continue moving indefinitely unless acted on by a force? Which one's common sense? Well, I don't know which one is common sense, but I know that we, le- we need to learn both. Now, perhaps the first one is kind of learned by infants experimenting in the world. Or not. I don't know. I just can't remember what I used to think before I understood. Well, it's actually Galileo's law, but this idea of moving objects just keep moving until acted on by a force. What I'm saying here is that I don't think that this idea, and this is uh, Dawkins' idea of middle world, that we've evolved with a capacity that limits our ability to understand the world. What we've in fact evolved with, in fact, is a brain which has the capacity to explain everything, to have this universal capacity for understanding the world. This is what David Deutsch explains in The Beginning of Infinity. There isn't some limit set by evolution of that kind, of understanding, of being impossibly unable to overturn your common sense or your intuitions. Your intuitions can change with what you learn about reality. My intuitions used to be that you could come to certain knowledge. You could get the final answer. That was my intuition. Now my intuition is you can't do that. It's exactly the opposite. I've, my intuition has changed. My common sense has changed. And I think this is true of everyone. And so People make a big deal of this. Oh, we've got an evolved brain. Yeah, we do have an evolved brain. Therefore, it's limited in what it can understand. No, no. You've misunderstood computational universality and misunderstood explanatory universality. This is what the brain is, what the human mind is capable of doing. But people make a big deal about this. So they make a big deal about how, oh, people just can't understand quantum theory. It's really hard. Or string theory, it's really hard. Well, these things are new These things are really new on the scene. In the distant future, we'll have better ways of understanding these things, especially if they comport with reality. I have no doubt that in generations from now, people will regard quantum theory in roughly the same way as we regard Newton's theories now. It used to be thought that Newtonian physics was completely counterintuitive. It took a long time for the general public to understand this stuff. So now, routinely, kids in sort of the first year of high school learn the basics of Newton's physics. They do. One day, non-coercively, we'll be educating our you know, new teenagers, if they're interested or even younger, the basics of quantum theory or whatever the successor to quantum theory is because we will know how to do that. We will know how to do it. But there is this thought that, well, it's just mathematically too complex. 
Okay, but we don't need all the idiot. In order to understand the basics of Newtonian physics, you don't need to go down the road of being able to solve the three-body problem, for example. Okay, yeah, that's technically difficult. But the, the basics, the basic ideas, they can be understood. They can be understood by people if they take an interest. And you can understand anything. The more interest you take in it, the more time you spend trying to understand that thing. And the fact that one person can do it means that someone else can do it. The string theory that Edward Witten understands could be understood by anyone else if they took an interest, but they tend not to take an interest in these things. And I understand this is an extremely poorly subscribed notion, but all it is is a consequence of thinking of the mind as a universal explainer. That doesn't mean that any one person will explain everything or will have the capacity to explain everything, even everything that's known, because they will never take an interest in everything that's known. It's just that if they did take an interest, then they could. <laughs> now, what causes someone to take an interest? Well, that's a, I think that's an open question. You know, uh, why do some people find certain things inherently boring? And when they regard these things as inherently boring, we say, well, I say uh, culture says, they're physically incapable of knowing that thing, of understanding that thing. You know, uh, certain people are just physically unable to learn maths or something like that, or certain kinds of maths. It's, it's too hard for them. Rather than saying it's too boring for them. Now, a lot of people would just pull the straps there and say, well, maybe they're the same thing. Maybe they're the same thing, too hard or too boring. What I'm saying is that in theory, given the right explanations, they could understand those things. Curiosity is a real thing. Trying to solve a certain problem. You need to have the, that problem situation, we say. This is part of Papyrian epistemology. Of course, a part of Papyrian epistemology that almost no one except the Papyrians actually know. So when people describe Papyrian epistemology, and they're not Papyrians, you don't hear them talking about problem situations. You barely hear them talking about problems and solutions at all. They talk about falsification, and that's it. And that's what we're going to hear later on. Okay, let's go back and we'll um, hear the next thing that Max has to say about this, on this idea that the evolved brain isn't evolved to understand the nature of reality or sophisticated physics or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's a very clear prediction of Darwin's ideas if you take them seriously, that whatever the ultimate nature of reality is, it should seem really weird and counterintuitive to us because, you know, developing a brain advanced enough to understand new concepts is costly in evolution. And it we wouldn't have evolved it and spent a lot of energy increasing our metabolism, etc., if it didn't help in any way. If, if some cavewoman spent too much time pondering what was out there beyond all the stars that she could see or subatomic particles... Now, she might not have uh, noticed the tiger that snuck up behind her and gone cleaned right out of the gene pool. Moreover, this is not just a natural logical prediction, but it's a testable prediction. Darwin lived a long time ago, right? And we can look what has happened since then when we've used technology to probe things beyond what we could experience with our senses. You know, so the prediction is that whenever we, with technology, study physics that was inaccessible to our ancestors, it should seem weird. So let's look at the fact sheet, at the scorecard. We studied what happened when things go much faster than our ancestors near the speed of light. Time slowed down. You know, mm. Whoa. This so weird that Einstein never even got the Nobel Prize for it because my Swedish curmudgeonly countryman on the Nobel Committee thought it was too weird. Right. Uh, you look at what happens when things are really, really huge and you get black holes, which were considered so weird. Again, it took a long time until people really started to accept them and you, then you look at what happens when you make things really small. Everything that's new is weird by definition. You can talk about people struggling to understand why certain historical events happen. We could talk about how not intuitive certain kinds of music are. This thing about, well, it's evolutionarily costly to have a brain that can understand the secrets of the universe, it misunderstands that that brain is only able to detect the tiger sneaking up on them, sneaking up on the proverbial cave woman he just talked about, in order to understand that that's happening. It's the same mind doing it, using the same process of conjecture and refutation. That's it. <laughs> the remarkable thing is that the same mind using the same process 
can both detect the tiger or detect the false positive of a tiger and also look up into the sky at those pinpricks of light and also figure out they're actually super hot furnaces of nuclear fusion. It's the same process going on of guessing and checking against reality. That's what's going on. And this is why the brain uh, was selected for, the human mind was selected for. Now, do people have instincts and is there some sort of thing we have in common with other animals? Yeah, sure. But the fundamental way in which we come to an understanding of reality and understand what a tiger is and what that noise might be at night is a different kind of a thing to what any other animal does. Any other animal is not going to learn quite so well over time that the noise it just heard at night is not a reason to run off as fast as it possibly can. But we can learn that false positives are a thing. That what we thought was a tiger, in fact, that's that same bush blowing in the wind and making that noise that kind of sounds like a tiger creeping up on us. But a gazelle or a wildebeest or whatever tigers go after, uh, they don't have that same, ca same capacity. They're always going to run. That's their instinct. They have no choice but to obey their instincts. We're different. We can routinely violate what our instincts are telling us to do because we're also interpreting those, interpreting those instincts in a way that animals just aren't. When I say we interpret, we explain what that sense data was. We explain it to ourselves to our own satisfaction. Now, we also have this system where, yeah, sure, we can react immediately to something, and that's good too. So we have at least two systems. The animal, the other animals only have this one, this one system. They can only do what their instincts tell them to do. Uh, we can go well beyond our instincts. Is it evolutionarily costly? Yes, but it also appears to have been the most evolutionarily valuable, powerful thing that has ever evolved. And as we like to say, it's a prelude to the rest of evolution that's going to happen, which is going to be mimetic. We are the general intelligence. We are the superintelligence. That's what we are. <laughs> we have this universal mind that can literally understand and explain anything, anything. So far, so good, by the way. Now, this is not an argument from induction. It's just saying that the only known explanation for the fact that we can continually make progress and have always made progress and haven't reached a stumbling block yet, okay, we've always got open questions, but they're not walls before us, not walls before our progress. The only known explanation for that is we have a universal mind, a universal mind that can understand anything. And if it wasn't universal, Shouldn't we have known by now? But people keep on saying, you know, you scientists especially who don't know the philosophy, just keep on saying, well, just you wait kind of thing. Just you wait, we're going to get the problem that we can't possibly solve. There's going to come the gap in our knowledge of physics which cannot be filled no matter how hard we try because our brain will be incapable of it. I mean, people have always been saying this. Since religious times, it's like there's no point trying to understand the world, just read the book. Okay, You, only God can understand the world. This was the prevailing view. This was why theologians and others and priests were saying to the scientists early on, and the philosophers, you're actually committing sacrilege by even trying to do this stuff. You should bow down to the authority of the books and of the priests because we know the truth. Your puny mind can't possibly understand the laws of nature, the laws of motion. Don't be ridiculous. And so have we moved beyond that, that sort of ideology? No, we haven't. But it's just now scientists often making that claim rather than the priests. Rather than the priests saying, don't try and understand reality because only God understands reality. It's now the scientists turning around and saying, well, maybe they were right all along. Maybe we can't understand reality. Maybe we have to look to you know, the aliens, the gods, in order to get a full understanding of reality because our puny human minds can't even begin to scratch the surface. We've got Newtonian mechanics we're very lucky to have moved beyond that into uh, general relativity and into quantum theory. But, you know, maybe string theory will bring those two things together. But you've got to expect the end is coming. The end is nigh for understanding. Either we complete physics or we're going to encounter the problem we can't solve. That's what we should expect. Of course, the David Deutsch worldview tells us, no, we should expect exactly the opposite. We should expect to continually solve our problems. And in retrospect, we look back and go, Oh, look, those other theories are actually easy and intuitive. When you've got the right way to think about them, they're actually intuitive after all. Okay, let's keep on going. You, then you look at what happens when you make things really small, so small that our ancestors couldn't see them, and you find that 
elementary particles can be in several places at once. Extremely counterintuitive to mm. the point that people are still arguing about what it means exactly, even though they all concede that the particles really can do this weird stuff. And the list goes on. Whenever you take any parameter out of the range of what we, our ancestors experienced, really weird things happen. If you have very high energies, for example, like when you smash two particles together near the speed of light at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, you know, if, if you collide a proton and an antiproton together and out pops a Higgs boson, you know, that's about as intuitive as if you collide a Volkswagen with an Audi and out comes a cruise ship. Mm. And yet, this is the way the world works. So I, I think the, <laughs> the verdict is in. Whatever the nature of reality actually is, it's going to seem really weird to us. And if we, therefore, dismiss physics theories just because they seem counterintuitive, we're almost certainly going to dismiss whatever the correct theory is when, once it, someone mm. actually tells us about it. So again, I, I agree with him. I agree with that sentiment that we should expect our new theories to be counterintuitive. In the same way that anything new is going to be counterintuitive. You know, the next iPhone, people kind of get annoyed when they change the operating system too much. It's like, it's no longer intuitive it was. Now, why was it intuitive? That the first iPhones weren't intuitive. Well, some people said they were. But it took, there's a learning curve. Any new bit of software... People complain, you know, oh, it's not intuitive. And then after a little bit of use, oh, this is great. It's intuitive. What does it take to go from not intuitive to intuitive? Well, learning, okay, conjecturing, guessing what things are true and by your own lights coming to understand stuff. That's all this use of the word intuitive means. It just means understanding. Can you understand it? And then it becomes intuitive. Like mathematicians famously... Uh, all the time, intuiting their way to stuff that people who don't understand mathematics to that level of proficiency certainly don't find intuitive. It takes a while to develop intuitions, intuitions about stuff. A professional gymnast is going to find certain movements of the body intuitive that the rest of us don't. A, a great pianist is going to understand how to play certain pieces intuitively that the rest of us don't. Physicists eventually find certain things intuitive. But at first, they're jarring. At first, the new laws of the universe, when they're explained to you, are not going to seem intuitive. Until they are, once you've understood them. Now, they still might seem surprising in retrospect, but only because you remember your old self. Your old self remembers what it was like not to understand the phenomena of dark energy, or the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, or the relativity of time. Your old self. But... Once you learn these things, once you get what's going on, intuitive. That just means understanding. But you can still remember what it was like not to understand those things. And so therefore, you can still say out loud, quite honestly, these things are weird and surprising. But only in light of the previous theory, the previous understanding of reality, the false misconceptions that you had. So yes, I, I totally agree. I totally agree that the next theories that we're going to develop not just, not just in physics, but physics is kind of preeminent in this sense of really challenging our intuitions, but everywhere. I would expect that everywhere. The reason why we have these open questions, whether they be in biology, geology, astronomy, anywhere, is because nothing is intuitive in that way. If it was, we'd just be intuiting our way, easily guessing, easily understanding the open question, the solutions to the open questions. But the reason we don't, not intuitive. Nothing is. What is intuitive? I don't know. Uh, I would just say that this word is being used as synonymous with stuff you already know. Intuitive is stuff you already know. And so new stuff, if it kind of challenges what you already know, refutes what you already know, then, yeah, it's, it, it's jarring and it can be difficult sometimes. You've got to fit it into your worldview in some way. But once you do, then it all becomes intuitive again. <laughs> I think I've made that point. Okay, let's see what uh, Sam has to say. So I'm wondering, though, whether this slippery slope is, in fact, more slippery than we're admitting here, though, because how do we resist the slide into total epistemological skepticism? So, so for instance, why trust our mathematical intuitions or the mathematical concepts born of them 
or the picture of reality in physics that's arrived at through this kind of bootstrapping of our intuitions into areas that are counterintuitive, because I understand why, why we should trust these things pragmatically. I mean, it seems to work. We can build machines that work. You know, we can fly on airplanes. You know, there's, there's a difference between an airplane that flies and one that doesn't. But as a matter of epistemology, why should we trust the picture of reality that math allows us to bring into view if, again, we are just apes who have used the cognitive capacities that uh, have evolved without any constraint that they accord with reality at large? And mathematics is clearly, insofar as we apprehend it, discover it, invent it, an extension of those very humble capacities. It's the wrong question. Epistemologically, he's asking, why should we trust any of these theories, given their counterintuitive nature and the subtleness of mathematics that we don't seem to have really got an evolved brain for? Epistemology is not about trust. It's about knowledge. And we don't need to trust our knowledge because, as I've been saying on recent episodes of TalkCast, generally speaking, you've only got the one explanation. In science, it's just the explanation. And so what else can you rely upon in order to solve your problems? And that, in the Popperian framework, is why, in answer to Sam's question, why it is that we should not trust these theories, but accept these theories as explanations of reality. Why should we accept them as explanations of reality? Because they solve the problem. They solve whatever the problem happens to be that we have. We have problems. We come up with solutions, and in science, we're able to test to see if those solutions really work. And if they do, then we say, hey, this explanation, this solution, it's got something right. It's saying something true about reality. It's solving our problem. It's making predictions into fields we never could have guessed. It's postulating the existence of entities that we never imagined, but we can test for the reality of. That's why we think these things are explanations that we can regard as good explanations of reality. Never mind trust. Never mind trusting them as being true or as finally true or anything like that. Trust isn't required. In fact, we should expect them to be overturned at some point. So we shouldn't be trusting them in the sense of thinking they're true for no good reason. Trust is a word that's kind of like faith. You know, why should we have faith in this theory? Why should we trust in this theory? Well, neither of those things, okay? We, we should rely on the theory. Why? Because it solves the problem. It's the only thing you've got to go on in almost all cases. So that's why. That's why we, and what, so why, but why should we think it's an actual explanation of reality? Well, because it's got something right. Here you go. Test the thing test this logical outcome called a prediction of the theory and you'll see that it works. Oh, but working doesn't mean it's an actual description of reality. Well, what else could it mean other than it's making a prediction about the nature of reality and it's getting it right where no other theory, no other competing theory is. So it's got something right. It was able to tell you what's going to happen. And it's only able to do that because it's making all of these other claims about reality simultaneously. This grand theory is making a bunch, a multitudinous number of claims that fall under the umbrella of the explanation. We've picked out one and gone, it works there. In fact, it works universally. Anytime you ask anything of it within its domain of applicability, it works. So it is capturing reality to some extent, not perfectly, not finally, that, that will never happen, but it's got something right. And that's just synonymous with it's saying something true. That's all. So that's the way I like to explain why it is we regard explanations that we hold as scientific theories of the world as being truly good explanations of reality and not merely useful fictions. Not merely useful fictions. They, they really do capture something. Now, we can't say finally of any of them, well, this is the bit here that is certainly once and for all finally true. No. In fact, the, the, it could be that the truth is inexplicit content that we can't quite say, but it's preserved from one theory through to another theory through to another theory as we make progress and improve towards a better and better understanding of objectively true reality, of the reality that's out there that has been captured by our best explanations. So let's see what Max has to say about that bit. Some people tell me sometimes that the theories that physicists, 
discuss conferences from black holes to parallel universes sound even crazier than um, a lot of myths from old time about fire, flame-throwing dragons and, and whatnot. You know? So to me, there is a huge difference here in that these physics theories, even though they sound crazy, as you yourself said here, they actually make predictions that we can actually test. And that is really the crux of it. So if you take the theory of quantum mechanics seriously, for example, and assume that particles can be in several places at once, then you predict that you should be able to build this thing called a transistor, which you can combine in vast numbers and build this thing called a cell phone, you know, and it actually works. This is very linked, I think, to where we should draw the borderline between sci what's science and what's not science. Some people think that the line should go between that which seems intuitive and not crazy and that which feels too crazy. And I'm arguing against that because black holes seemed very crazy at the mm. time and now we've found bunch, loads of them in the sky. To me instead, really the, the line in the sand that divides science from what's not science is the way I think about it is I, what makes me a scientist is that I would much rather have questions I can't answer than have answers I can't question. One thing you're, you're emphasizing here is that it's not in the strangeness or uh, seeming acceptability of the conclusion. It's in the methodology by which you arrived at that conclusion. And falsifiability and, and testable predictions is part of that. It, I don't think you would say that a Popperian conception of science uh, you know, as a set of falsifiable claims subsumes all of science because they're clearly scientifically coherent things we could say about the nature of reality where we know there's an answer there, we just know that no one has the answer. The very prosaic example I often use here is, you know, how many birds are in flight over the surface of the earth at this moment? Well, we don't know. Uh, we know we're never going to know because it's just changed before I can get to the end of the sentence. But it's a totally coherent question to ask, and we know that it just has an integer answer you know, leaving spooky quantum mechanics or parallel universes aside, if we're just talking about Earth with, and birds as objects, we can't get the data, but we know in some basic sense that this reality that extends beyond our perception guarantees that the data in principle exist. I think you say at some point in your book that a theory doesn't have to be testable across the board, it just parts of it have to be testable to give us some level of credence in its overall picture. Is that, is that how you view it? Things that make you go, hmm. So, of course, what I'm going to say there is that, of course, Popper is not encapsulated, Popper's epistemology is not encapsulated by a series of testable statements. That's <laughs> not what his view of science is. This notion, this misconception about Popperian epistemology is near ubiquitous among anyone who's not a self-described Popperian of a sort. Popper talked about problems and solutions, explanations and non-explanations. He talked about a line of demarcation between science and non-science, which is drawn by this testability criterion, but he wasn't saying that you need to be able to in practice test everything. It's an in-principle idea. In principle, Sam's thought experiment of how many birds are in flight right now is indeed in principle testable. Because as he said, there's an answer. You can imagine some series of lasers or something or other that could actually count up, you know, or satellites or something like that, 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 that could in principle gather that data. It could in principle be gathered. There's data there to be gathered, which is what makes it a scientific claim, if you like. But of course, as we would say, well, what problem is this solving? That's what we would ask. What explanation are we looking for here? Now, Popper's view of science is explanation-centered. David Deutsch's view of Popperian epistemology is explanation-centered. And we want to be able to test our explanations. Now, what this number of birds in flight is all about, I don't know. But it's one of those things where we say it's a philosopher talking purely in the abstract and not actually solving a problem. Once you stick to asking the question, what problem are you trying to solve? Things clarify themselves far more. The problem of what a bird is, of how birds reproduce, of what distinguishes a bird from a mammal, all these kind of things, they're, they're useful biological problems. Now, number of birds in flight, I don't know what problem that would possibly solve. Like, what, what are we looking for there? In principle, as I say, it's testable. In principle, it's well within a Popperian view of science. All a Popperian view of science is, is are the explanations testable or not? 
There's all these different kinds of explanations from moral through to political, historical, mathematical, philosophical. And there's scientific ones as well. And the scientific ones are distinguished by can you test them in some way, shape or form? It's not saying can you test for the presence of every single thing that exists in the universe? No, in fact, the Popperian view, well, David Deutsch's explanation of the Popperian view says very much that what we're doing is explaining the seen, the stuff we can observe, in terms of the unseen, the stuff that in principle we can't observe, but we know is there because we can test the theory via some other means. My go-to example here is, of course, we know what's going on in the core of the sun. We know, we have good explanations that what's going on there is something like the PP chain in order to produce helium. You've got hydrogen nuclei, protons being smashed together there to form helium. This fusion reaction is happening there. But no one's ever going to go to the core of the sun and gather the relevant data there. Instead, what we do is we interpret the light coming from the sun all the way here on Earth and satellites that are around the sun and looking at spectra and inferring on that basis, explaining what must be going on in the core. Even though we can't observe what's going on there, that's Popperian. That's Popperian. There is no rival to that theory, by the way. No rival whatsoever. And we can rule out anyone who comes along with a rival by doing crucial tests because, in theory, their theory would make predictions, would make specific predictions that are different to the theory that we have about stellar nucleosynthesis, stellar fusion, how this, why the sun shines and what must be going on in the core of the sun. That's what Popper's view is. Now, this is where Popper has been invoked and, and, and Max is about to say he's sympathetic to Popper, but... Let's just hear what he says. <laughs> well, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to Popper in the, the idea of testability works fine for even these crazy concepts, like sounding concepts like parallel universes and, 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 and black holes. As long as we remember that what we test are theories, specific mathematical theories that we can write down. Right? Parallel universes are not a theory. They're a prediction from certain theories. A black hole isn't a theory either. It's a prediction from Einstein's general relativity theory. And once you have a theory in physics, it's testable as long as it predicts at least one thing that you can go check. Right. Because then you can falsify it if you check that thing and it's wrong. Whereas it might also make, just because it happens to also make some other predictions for things you can never test, you know, that doesn't make it non-scientific as long as there's still something you can test. Yeah. Black holes, for example, the theory of general relativity predicts exactly what would happen to you if you fall into the monster black hole in the middle of a galaxy that weighs four million times as much as the sun. It predicts exactly how you're going to, when you're going to get spaghettified and how, <laughs> when you're, and so on. Except you can never actually do that experiment and then write an article about it. So he says there that you know the multiverse isn't a theory; it's a prediction. Uh, black holes aren't a theory; they're a prediction. Well. You know, again, in the Popperian framework, these things are, it's all theoretical, it's all conjectures, it's all interpretations of stuff. Now, I might want to say, well, you know, there is this broader theory called general relativity, which generates certain predictions, some of which are black holes. But the black hole itself is a theory of certain objects that actually exist out there. And these can themselves be tested for. So that part of general relativity can be tested for. And I wouldn't, if, if, if general relativity makes a prediction of black holes and we never detect black holes, that's not a refutation of general relativity, is it? It could or could not be a problem. Of course, postulating the existence of something and never finding it doesn't mean that thing doesn't exist. But let's say black holes didn't exist and general relativity was the only theory we had, well, we've still only got general relativity and it would cap still capture something true about reality. It might not get everything true, but we should expect that anyway. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying all of this in order to defend Popperian epistemology, to sort of stand here and say, now, Karl Popper got it all right, and if only people would listen to David Deutsch, though I'm kind of saying that. It's important, it's useful if people understand epistemology better because they're, then their thinking on certain matters is clearer, more refined, it just makes sense, it coheres together. And all the stuff they're saying that I agree with, it's just remarkable that they're kind of distancing themselves, well, Sam is kind of distancing himself in some way, seemingly from Popper, and he's done this on various podcasts, of course, over the years, but often when he thinks he's disagreeing with Popper, he's not. <laughs> he's not. He's disagreeing with a version of Popper that never actually existed 
or that maybe he read in a book somewhere by someone who disagreed with Popper. See, I see this very often. I see this very often. But Max is totally right in saying there are these things that can't be observed out there. And that's fine. That's fine. As I just said about the core of the sun, as I've said before about uh, the moment of the Big Bang, we know it happened, but no one's going to be there. And David Deutsch says dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are literally unobserved. Unless we invent time machines, no one's ever going to observe a dinosaur or maybe genetic engineering of the future. But all we have right now are fossils, rocks. That's all we have. We don't have access directly to dinosaurs. We can't observe the very thing, the unseen thing, the dinosaur, that explains what we do see, the fossil. This is perfectly Popperian, perfectly Popperian. And I would argue it's only Popperian epistemology that properly accounts for this, that says you have an explanation of the unobserved stuff. Bayesian epistemology and these other epistemologies talk about, well, it all comes down to observation. If you can't observe the thing, then somehow or other it's ruled out as being non-scientific because they have this empiricist bent. Not all, not all versions, I accept that. But also there's this focus on prediction, prediction as well. Whereas we say, and I think Max kind of subtly kind of got things wrong there a bit, where he was saying that we could you know, falsify general relativity, let's say if something was predicted about black holes, it wasn't true, only if we have an alternative. The function of evidence, the function of observation in science at that level is to distinguish between competing theories. And if you have no competitor to general relativity, which is explaining all of your phenomena, maybe except for one thing that it gets wrong, it just systematically gets wrong all the time for whatever reason, well, you've got nowhere else to leap to. Until such time as someone comes along and is able to explain that thing and everything else that general relativity can explain. Before general relativity, we had problems with gravity. We couldn't predict exactly why Mercury's orbit was... couldn't explain why Mercury's orbit was doing what it was doing. Now, for the time between when we only had Newton's theory and when we had these anomalies with Mercury's orbit... And when we got general relativity, between that time, when we got general relativity, oh, there was nothing else to do. There was nothing else for it but to rely on Newton's theory of gravity. Now, at that time, when we've got these problems with Mercury's orbit, we literally didn't know. And people were postulating things like another planet perturbing, altering the orbit of Mercury as it went around the sun. And that was reasonable. No one could rule that out at the time. They didn't know. Was it the theory of gravity that was wrong in some way? Or was it the observations being made that were wrong in some way. Was there a hidden planet causing this strange orbital properties of Mercury as it went around the sun? We, we just didn't know at that time. And, and this, is, this is the case for open problems today. We don't know if it's the theory that's wrong. We don't know if it's our observations wrong. We don't know if there's some underlying hidden thing yet to be observed that will explain, uh, find the solution to the problem that we have. So I think we'll call this part one. So this will be enough for today. But I'm going to come back to this discussion. It's a fascinating discussion. You can see that I am being very nitpicky, but I think it's it's a helpful insight and inroad into distinguishing these kind of differences between, one would presume, rationally minded people, uh, scientifically literate types, and people who have more or less an all-encompassing worldview, and people who might have cobbled together philosophies that are kind of separate and uh, may not cohere in some ways. I don't know. I don't know how to put that. But until next time, bye-bye. Girlfriend!